Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm Eric Rieger here with this other guy who's also the host, Dr. Kenneth Brown. But we got a special guest. This is exciting. We have somebody, um, Dr. Joanne Kennedy, naturopath in Australia, who happens to be an expert in two things that I need to learn a lot about. And you definitely need to learn a lot about because there's a 40% chance, yes, 40% chance that you have an issue that she can help you with. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Essentially, the MTHFR gene, you're like, I don't know what that is. Trust me, you're going to want to learn because that's a 40% chance that you have that. And histamine issues, which are completely associated with so many different problems that we deal with. So today we have Dr. Joanne Kennedy. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? I want to thank you so much for, well, coming back on because what happened is, is that uh, we had agreed on a date and a time and it was uh, September 28th, which here is September 28th. And unfortunately, I received that email from you and you're like, hey, I'm waiting for the Zoom link. Shouldn't we be rolling right about now? And I got that later. And then I woke up in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m. And I went, oh, my gosh, she lives in the future. She's in Australia. It was the 28th for her. It's the 28th it was, for us tomorrow. So it was the 29th today. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did so how did this podcast turn out? I mean, you're living in the future. Did we do well on this? Yeah, I mean, no, no, it was ace, we aced it, guys. All right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for reliving it with us. It'll be so much fun. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you because I myself found out that I am a heterozygote MTHFR deficient person and I had elevated homocysteine. Oh. So, and I was completely oblivious to it. And when my doctor ordered it, he was like, here, you need to make sure that you do this and do that. And I'm like, eh. And I just completely like walked away from it. And this is a couple of years ago. I'm like, I've, my bandwidth is only so much. I can't learn more about something else. I'm sure it's fine. And then a bunch of patients started coming up to me because here in the United States, people are really starting to check for it. It's starting to become more known. And I was like, yeah, me too. If you learn about it, I'm telling my patients, if you learn about it, come back and help me because I got the same problem you do. So that's why I'm excited to have an expert such as you in two things Super important. We deal with bacterial overgrowth. We yeah. deal with gut health. And I recently have also learned that any type of gut damage, any type of inflammation in the gut can lead to histamine intolerance. And that's what I need to pick your brain about also. So I am thrilled that we have you here on the podcast. So welcome. Do you go by Dr. Kennedy? Joanne, how would you no, like to? Joanne Kennedy. We're not doctors here in the US. Um, I think naturopathic, naturopaths in the US are doctors naturopathic doctors where we're just naturopaths same thing oh, okay the same it's, thing same same education it's just we just don't call ourselves that i think that's <laughs> an american thing because you, like... you can call me doctor if you like you know what you're we're gonna call you doctor at the end if you know all the information that i think that you're going to show <laughs> us um, I was just thinking, it seems like everything that never used to be a doctor is now a doctor now you're a doctor of physical therapy you're a doctor of CRNA, you're a doctor. Uh, you now you're a doctor if you're a nurse practitioner. We're doing the exact opposite here. Everybody gets called doctor at some point. Yeah, no, that's the American way. You're a winner. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're a winner. <laughs> yeah, you all are winners. Everybody gets a trophy. That's so true. Yeah. The place for reality television. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I I have a bio that I've kind of put together from a few different places. Would you like me to? introduce you please do all right so today we have joanne kennedy i consider a doctor she does not consider herself a doctor quite yet because they don't have that title there that's not written down that's not written down but she is a highly experienced neuropath and specialist in the mthfr gene methylation and histamine intolerance 
Prior to establishing her own practice, Joanne worked at MTHFR Support Australia as a naturopath specializing in treating patients with the MTHFR gene mutation and methylation issues. In addition to this, she understands the role that histamine intolerance plays in so many health issues and became an expert in histamine intolerance. Due to her unique expertise in the MTHFR gene and histamine issues, she focuses on digestion and gut health, women's hormones, and chronic skin conditions. Joanne's approach is to identify the root cause of illness, and she believes education and knowledge is what empowers her patients to make long-term positive changes towards optimal health. And that's how we feel also. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Well, let's start with this. I said the acronym a million times, MTHFR, most basic. Why, what is that? What is that gene? Okay. So this is really important to understand is that this, the MTHFR gene provides the code for the MTHFR enzyme. Basically the gene says to the enzyme, you are an enzyme, right? The MTHFR enzyme, your role is to donate a methyl group to folate. Okay, now we now know that people can have a gene mutation on MTHFR, whereby it can reduce the functioning of that enzyme. However, it's not necessarily going to be expressing if the environment is right. When the environment is wrong, i.e. you don't eat any folate, you don't eat fo green leafy vegetables, you're not gonna have enough folate to create methylfolate. Or you eat a lot of folic acid, which is fortified mm. in a lot of wheat and, and products and even supplements that will block your uptake of your natural folate. Or you've got gut issues, in particular SIBO, because folate is absorbed through the small bowel and you need pancreatic enzymes to absorb folate. So we need to be thinking about the environment and gut issues and, and diet when it comes to how this actual enzyme functions alongside with if there's a gene mutation. And in particular, if that gene mutation is driving up your homocysteine, because homocysteine is a cardiovascular risk and a blood clotting risk, can also damage the blood brain barrier. So MTHFR is something we think about in the background, but it's not a definitive um, it, it's not a life sentence. You can you can work with that enzyme to make sure it's functioning properly. And we are looking at the entire methylation pathway, which it is involved in. So there's a lot of hype around MTHFR. A lot of people will blame their health conditions on MTHFR, but it is 95% environment that we need to think about. Mm, and, nice. Which is powerful because we can then make a change. So homocysteine can also rise if you don't have enough um, B12. You know, you need methylfolate and methyl B12 to recycle homocysteine into methionine, which will, which will keep it at a balanced state. So it's not just MTHFR. It is all the other nutrients that we need to support the, um, the homocysteine moving into SAMe, which is for methylation, and moving down the transsulfuration pathway to make glutathione. And when it does that and it's balanced, um, it, it supports methylation, it supports glutathione production. So just looking at one gene and going, I've got MTHFR, therefore I've got a diagnosis of something is not correct. Okay, so it's, it's, it's people are um, getting on the bandwagon with it and it's, it's great because it's something that we can think about, but we have to put it into context with everything else going on with our patients. Mm -hmm. A couple quick questions right there. So is checking, I've had several patients come to me and they said, I'm fine because my, uh, my doctor checked my homocysteine level and it was normal. So I don't think there's anything wrong. So can homocysteine in itself be a marker or something to pursue more testing or is it sufficient? Is it something that is like the canary in the minefield where you're developing more homocysteine? So now we need to sit there and look deeper and make some lifestyle changes. Absolutely. Homocysteine is such an important test to do. 
because it's involved in two very important biochemical reactions in the body. It's methylation, and it's involved in the sulfation pathway and glutathione. So if your homocysteine is high, how, what, how high is high in, in um, the US? Oh, I don't know. I, yeah, I would have okay. to, yeah. and, and in fact, I don't know because it is rarely done. It's rarely a test. Okay. It would have to be somebody that has some functional medicine training here that would even think about it. There's not really any allopathic doctor here that would check that with any regularity at all. Yeah, it, 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 same here. It doesn't happen that often. We have to ask for it. So if your homocysteine levels are high, it's say oh, for women sort of over 10, men over 12, um, what is, what's that saying to us is that your homocysteine is not, it's blocked. Homocysteine needs to be converted into what we call SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine, which is your methyl donor, with methylfolate and methyl B12. And, and chol choline and zinc can help as well. Okay. So basically, if you are deficient in methylfolate because you don't eat any green leafy vegetables at all. You are not absorbing folate properly through the small bowel. You eat a lot of folic acid, which is just so common because of, you know, the food chain. And you have no methylfolate along with, you know, an, an MTHFR gene mutation, particularly homozygous C677T, which can cause a 70% reduction in that enzyme functioning. Okay, so these people are really low in methylfolate, so they don't have enough methylfolate to convert homocysteine into SAMe, right? And you also need B12. You can't use your methylfolate without methyl B12. So methylfolate carries, so methyl B12 carries methylfolate into what we call this methionine pathway, which helps regenerate and move homocysteine around. And when it builds up too high because you're deficient in methylfolate, you've got MTHFR, you've got low B12, it will build up. And that is a blood clotting risk. So it can cause miscarriage and it can cause cardiovascular issues and it damages the blood-brain barrier. Now, you might not feel unwell. You can be fine. Fine, you don't have a problem. If you're a woman, you, you, you are fine, you're healthy, and then you have a miscarriage mm -hmm. and you don't know why. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then you'll probably have five miscarriages before they even test it, okay? Or it's implicated in, in neurodegenerative um, diseases, Alzheimer's and stuff. So you won't know until it's too late or, you know, you dropped out of a heart attack. You might not feel unwell with high homocysteine at all. But the thing is, low homocysteine is something that no, not hardly anyone understands this. And low homocysteine will tell me that you have massive problems with your production of glutathione. It's going to be due to having chronic inflammation because mm -hmm. your requirement for glutathione is really high. So what we've got to understand about homocysteine it's involved in methylation, but it's a storage molecule for sulfur. And sulfur is the second most abundant element in our body. It's essential for detoxification, essential for making glutathione. And people with low homocysteine feel so sick because what's driving it low is often mold illness and oxalate toxicity, which makes people feel wretched. These people have chronic fatigue, migraines, anxiety, depression, Chronic, um, chronic pain, chronic joint pain, chronic gut issues. They have chronic candida. All the, all, all the kids on the um, spectrum, autistic kids have low homocysteine. So when your homocysteine is low like that, it's a, it's a really big red flag. Like this is the first test I'll look at. If it's low, it's like this person is very unwell. And one of the main reasons is oxalates. Um, oxalates get formed in the, cup, in the gut when you have a very unhealthy gut. Oxalates can also build up from diets. So people who are going a full paleo diets with lots of nuts and seeds. Spinach is high in oxalates. So people doing spinach smoothies every day, they're building up their oxalate content to a point where you can't break it down. And what happens is when you've got all this oxalate in the body, 
Oxalates form crystals and they're sharp crystals. They deposit in the gut, in the joint, in the bladder, urethra, they can into thyroid. They cause chronic inflammation, massive cause of histamine intolerance. But at the same time, what happens is oxalates share the same transporter carrier in the body as sulfur. And oxalates mm. hog the transport train. Like they get on. And there's nowhere for your sulfur to go and you start dumping sulfur in the urine, which is a disaster. And then what happens is to get sulfur, your body starts chopping up glutathione, sorry, chopping up homocysteine. It starts getting sulfur from homocysteine. So your homocysteine levels drop, 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 drop. And then you're under methylating because you don't have enough homocysteine for methylation. It's complex. Okay. Yeah, it's that's a, a, yeah. So let's. The low is the big deal. Yeah. So I just want to revisit that because the only thing I've ever heard of is do you have high homocysteine? You're at risk. You have inflammation. And what you're saying is the low homocysteine is like all things, everything has to be in, you know, homeostasis. The low homocysteine is equally detrimental in a different way, but in a much more systemic way. Yes. where you get on this hamster wheel and you're starting to burn through different things. The glutathione you said is a sulfur storage molecule. Yeah, I always think. Sorry, Ken, well, they both have, but homocysteine is a sulfur storage molecule, right? That gives, that gives, the, that gives the glutathione to, to help yeah. glutathione? Okay, great. Because I always yeah. think glutathione is the great antioxidant. You know, antioxidant. Oh, no, it, it is, but how you, you need sulfur to make glutathione. To do that, yeah. Right? So, so to get it, it's going to go, oh my God, like we're so low in sulfur, we're going to start getting it from homocysteine. Yeah. Right? And, and, is and the gut microbiome, this is fascinating, the gut microbiome will start to produce sulfur, sulfur bacteria to get more sulfur. And then what happens when you eat sulfur foods, you feel really sick because you've got too much sulfur in your, in your body, in your gut, but you're not using it. You're not using it because the oxalates are hogging the sulfur train and you're just dumping it, dumping it, dumping it in the urine. Well, you just said so something really well, you just said something that I've never heard before, but is really interesting because what we've talked about on the show before uh -huh. is when you have sulfate reducing bacteria, if, certainly if you have an overgrowth of that, that leads to an increase in hydrogen sulfide, which we now know the hydrogen sulfide is a form of SIBO that what causes diarrhea, diarrhea. And we know that it creates inflammation. It's been linked to both colon cancer and to inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if we have yeah. somebody that has a predisposition to inflammatory bowel disease, the, the father and the grandmother have Crohn's, this should be one of the things we start thinking about immediately, which is let's look yeah. at this methylation pathway and make sure you don't end up in this downward slide. Like, testing oh. homocysteine is just, if it's low, then you just, you have to shift gears. Like it's such, it's low. It's like, it's like, this is a big problem. Why, why is mm. it low? And, and that, and then we need to work through that. Um, the hydrogen sulfide thing, the sulfur thing's hard. It's tricky because it's not just an issue of an overgrowth of methane producers or hydrogen producers, and it's not that hard to fix. When there's sulfur problems, it's destroying your detoxification pathway. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it's, and it's really why, and the question is, why do you, why is your body trying to make more sulfur? Why? You know, and that's the question we've got to ask. And, and there's, it's always coming from something insidious, something like mold illness, heavy metals, you know, aluminium and lead and mercury. That's a big problem. Lyme disease, not that we even acknowledge that it exists in Australia, but Lyme disease will do it. And um, oxalates, mold. And these are big environmental issues. And until it's dealt with, the person will never thrive. These patients are the people that have been unwell for 20 years and no one can work it out. Hmm. So if somebody shows up and I want to ask also, because Eric has been always using the folic acid as an example of how, well, quite honestly, how drug companies try to circumvent pathways. Well, more importantly, so when someone is on prenatal vitamins, I've always often wondered, at least here stateside, I was going to ask you uh, specifically when you brought up folic acid, Folic acid seems to be this huge additive in prenatal vitamins here in the U.S. And I've never quite understood why they go that route, knowing that 
regular folate would be far more beneficial because the body has that, that protein that's meant to fold it so that it can be used for protein synthesis, et cetera. And just as you highlighted, high intake of folic acid actually disrupts that entire chain. So I've noticed that over the last five years, there's happened, there happens to have been a push for folate containing prenatal vitamins. We're, we're finally starting to make that, that switch. And you highlighted that folic acid intake could be really anybody. If you look at soft drinks and different things like that, junk food, they're littered with folic acid. They're literally disrupting that particular process. So why did people lean on folic acid when it's, I think it's been more than obvious that uh, even if you want to do neural tube protection for growth, that folate's the answer. So it's really stable and it's really cheap. Mm. Oh, so there you go. So <laughs> shelf life, save money, make more money. And it looks good on a label. Yeah. People don't understand. It's like this thing, folate's folic acid. It's, you know, it's folate is food. Folic acid is synthetic man-made. It doesn't exist as a molecule in our body. I'm so and glad to hear you say that. It, does, it needs to be converted into methylfolate, but it's just a hard process. I think there is robust, there's a lot of evidence that folic acid pre prevents neural tube defects, and it, and it does. But what happens to the poor mother yeah. when she's not methylating properly and she ends up postnatal? You know, after she gives birth, she's got so much estrogen. And she's not methylating properly. And how, what do you need to detoxify estrogen? You need methylation. So, so a lot of the time, like they'll, they'll, they have a healthy child, but the mother is so deplete because she's been taking five milligrams of folic acid. The baby's getting it. I mean, I'm not a fertility specialist, but the, the you know, it's amazing what happens in fertility and the, the, the body will protect the baby at all costs. So the, you know, the baby gets enough to prevent neural tube, sure. but then the mother just suffers from um, massive issues with estrogen detoxification. She might end up with massive is issues with histamine detoxification because you need methylation to break down histamine. Um, so, so yeah. So, it, I, I mean, in Australia, we now have a lot of products that are methylfolate for fertility Mm -hmm. Guys, here's the catch. So many people can't tolerate methyls. It makes them depressed and anxious, paranoid, suicidal. Like it's pretty hectic. So um, just, yeah, it, it's a bit of a dilemma. It's a bit of a dilemma. Because I've got a lot of women come to me that can't take methylfolate and they're so anxious because they know they have to take folic acid and they, they're so scared about doing that. Um, so so it's... It, it, It's hard. I mean, we've got folinic. So folinic acid will convert into meth um, replication. So it's also really important for fertility. So folinic acid could be really good for someone that can't tol tolerate methylfolate and, and doesn't want to take folic acid. Conversely, let's say that someone doesn't have the issue of taking methylfolate, but they're just on the fence of, well, I know I could protect the baby's neural tube uh, growth. And... I know that folic acid would work in their benefit, but the truth is they could just consume foods that have plenty of folate and also just be fine. Correct. Well, what if they've got SIBO and they can't absorb it? I'm not, I, when it comes to fertility guys, it's, it's tricky because it's just, um, you've got to, you've got to, the outcome is a healthy baby. It's, it, it's difficult because methyl, the, I don't know if the research is there for methyl, methyl folate as robustly for actually preventing neural tube defects as folic acid. <laughs> it, it is a dilemma. And I don't specialize in fertility. I'm just not at all interested in babies and stuff. But my old boss, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, my old, my old boss is doing her PhD in um, folate, folinic acid, fo folate, folic acid methylfolate and fertility so it the research will come and it'll happen mm -hmm. it's tricky it's a tricky one <laughs> you said that some, you said that so, some people cannot tolerate methylated versions what why why is that well methylation breaks down histamine in the central nervous system so when people have a chronic health issue 
and inflammation in the body, which is chronic illness, right? It will release histamine. Okay. And histamine it gets into the brain and it causes vertigo, headaches, migraines, anxiety, insomnia, okay, nausea, motion sickness. And then people will go and take methyls and it break it directly will start breaking down histamine in the brain, the central nervous system, but you're not fixing the cause. So the methyl, the, the histamine's coming up into the body, it's coming from SIBO gluten intolerance, candida, oxalates, mold, coming from all these things, and it's making someone feel uh, having histamine issues. You take methyls, it breaks it down really fast, and it's it's not treating the cause, and it will come out as an adverse reaction, a worsening oh. of your migraines, a worsening of anxiety, chronic insomnia. People that are like, you know, OCD, sort of paranoid, like paranoia, um, <laughs> suicidal thoughts it's really full on and this wow. is why this is why i will continue to do mthfr even though i don't think it's a, a big deal on its own is because i have people who come into my clinic nearly every week like anxious shaking they're like i've, I've been or oh, i've always been a nervous person but now it's out of control and i can't sleep and i'm like are you taking methyls and they said yes and I get them off them. And within a couple of days, they'll email me saying, I'm so much better. I'm back to my, mm. my normal, my normal person. Right. Wow. So, so it's, it's really, really, really prevalent. I hardly ever use methyls in my clinic because you can support methylation with diet and gut function. You can take folinic acid, which will convert slowly into methylfolate. You can take hydroxycobalamin, which will convert slowly into methyl B12. And the person, you fix the problems. Why are you low in B12? Why are you low in mm -hmm. methylfolate? Why do you have high homocysteine, low homocysteine? Why, why, why? And you support them slowly and that will give them the best outcome. You, you, uh, so you most, most of the time, with the exception, if someone has very high homocysteine and it's causing them, you know, they've got other cardiovascular risk markers, we have to go in with methyls, but we start really slowly. We start really slowly with methyl B12. So about, you know, 500 micrograms will start on and we'll make sure they tolerate it, get their B12 up. And then you go in with methylfolate because you, you, if, you, if you don't have enough B12, your methylfolate will build up. It gets stuck. You can't use it. Right. So you've got to go slowly and then build it up. And then, and then the homocysteine will come down. That I just have someone who's healthy and fit and just has high homocysteine. These people are usually quite unwell and sick so so you just got to go if you need to use them you need to go slowly and if your patient is telling you they feel worse leave them don't just say oh you know push through it be be really careful with it because i've literally had people who are suicidal no joke wow well i had a quick question do you find with the deficiencies that you've you've outlined a few times being b12 that this is a chronic issue or an issue that happens oftentimes with those who happen to be vegan or vegetarian? Uh, all the time. Yeah. Vegans, vegetarians are chronically low in B12. Yeah. So the B12 levels in Australia, you know, this, the, the, the pathology lab ranges where the, the doctors are thinking are adequate are dismal. You know, the, the active, I think it's like serum B12, they want over 150. If your B12 is 150, you're, you're close to having neurological like damage. Active B12 over 35, it needs to be well over 100. So it goes, it goes, it, people, it's not being picked up. And it, what causes low B12? Absolutely diet, no dietary in intake, proton pump inhibitors like Nexium, the biggest selling drugs in the world. Um, people with um, SIBO, hydrochloric acid deficiency, what causes hydrochloric acid deficiency? Stress. So he, like we just stress out our brains in here, in the, well, Sydney for sure. Pe so all of these, there's so many things that will reduce your B12 absorption and then you are absolutely not methylating well at all. And also, guys, this is the thing, you need meth methionine, right? The, meth the whole methylation pathway actually does get kicked off. When you eat animal protein and get methionine, amino acid methionine, right? So you need good hydrochloric acid to absorb that, good gut function, absorb your methionine. 
Methionine, when it's activated, creates samethionine, your methyl donor. It goes around the body and it supports methylation, energy production, histamine breakdown, estrogen breakdown, detoxification, a whole lot of things, cell membrane production, bile acid production. It's so important. And then once, once methylation's happened, you, it, that, the methylation switch gets turned off and it gets converted back into homocysteine. So to make homocysteine, you need protein. You need sulfur-based amino acids. You need methionine. So this is really important. So, you know, vegans, vegetarians will be so under-methylated. And the thing with vegans and vegetarians is because of the low hydrochloric acid, they end up with SIBO because, mm -hmm. you know, hydrochloric acid is the conductor of all your other digestive enzymes. So once, once the brain's like, yeah, hydrochloric acid is being released, it sends a, a message to the pancreas to take pancreatic juice to the small bowel that alkalizes the small bowel. And if you've got an acidic small bowel, you're going to grow SIBO. And then what are they eating? They're eating FODMAP. They're eating lentils and legumes, which are FODMAP and starch, resistant starch, and it's just feeding SIBO. Then they're relying heavily on nuts and seeds that are very high oxalate. So they've got massive issues with gut and massive issues with methylation and massive issues with sulfation. So I don't, I don't actually treat them in clinic unless they change their ways because it's too hard. But that's mm. essentially what, what goes on, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, actually, I think that's a really, really good illustration of I mean, just beyond being deficient in vitamin B, why yeah. there's a uh, there's a systemic effect or a cascading effect of avoiding animal meats. I don't know that it's it's not something you and I do for sure. No, yeah, d definitely not. I think that's fascinating. In like, I just want to hear two different patients that would see you in a typical way, just real briefly. Uh, the person that walks in, just give me an example of somebody who would walk in with a high homocysteine level. Yeah. And what, okay, so and what you would do initially, and then the same with a low homocysteine level. Okay. So if someone comes in to see me in clinic, they might just be presenting with some, some gut issues, some, some fatigue issues, sort of, stand, you know, kind of standard stuff. And I'll just be thinking, oh, maybe you've got SIBO, maybe you're just gluten intolerant, maybe you're B12 deficient, maybe you're iron deficient, Right. Thought, what's going on with your thyroid? Or think about this. And then for some reason, their doctor's done their homocysteine test. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and it's kind of like, you know, it, the homocysteine might be sitting at like 15, 16. But the cutoff range for us, I think you, um, it, your homocysteine needs between like 7 and 15. And it's 15, 16. And the doctor's like, doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. So it's like, do you, you know, and the, and the, you know, little Johnny in front of me is a bit tubby. He doesn't exercise well. He's got high blood pressure and you and he's really stressed. And he's like, you're a ticking time bomb for cardiovascular disease. We, we, we need to work on your homocysteine, right? But the thing is he hasn't come to me for that. He's come to me because he's tired and he needs to lose weight and his gut's not good. So I'm not going to freak him out. I'm just going to say, look, your homocysteine's a bit higher. Let's just work on your absorption of your nutrients through your gut. And I'm going to start you on some B12. I'm going to start you on some hydroxycobalamin. Hydroxycobalamin will convert into methylcobalamin really, really slowly. Okay. I'll get him on about 500 milligrams of methyl, um, methylcobalamin. Make sure he tolerates it so it doesn't give him anxiety, depression, or headache. And then once he's okay i'll get him up to about two milligrams of methyl b12 and then i'll start with methylfolate so i'll start with like 100 micrograms of methylfolate and then just build it up slowly to about it just depends on how homocysteine is to about one milligram and make sure he's tolerating all of that now the other thing with homocysteine is you also need b6 to lower homocysteine so homocysteine gets converted down the transsulfuration pathway with vitamin b6 Okay, so once I know that they're tolerating the methyls, I will get them on a formula specific for reducing homocysteine, which will have methyl B12, methylfolate, vitamin B6. It might also have a little bit of choline or trimethylglycine, which also will help regenerate and regenerate homocysteine into methionine, which will start to lower it. Um, and for about 
three months they need to take that and they need to retest the homocysteine. Hmm. So if their homozygous C677T MTHFR, I'll educate them on this is something that you need to consider, be aware of, and you need to keep taking your homocysteine, um, keep taking your, your methyl your homocysteine lowering supplements, retest, make sure it's in range, and then they probably just need to be on a maintenance B vitamin supplement just to ensure that they're regenerating and moving their homocysteine around the pathway properly and keep retesting every six months. Because if you take these homocysteine lowering supplements for too long, you're just going to end up with low homocysteine. Mm. So then that low homocysteine person walks into your clinic, what do they look like? How do they present? Low homocysteine. Like how do they present physically? Um, They are um, anxious, depressed, they have multiple chemical sensitivities. They have chronic gut issues. They have pain issues. They have fatigue issues, brain fog. They are sick because it's oxalates and mold. Yeah, they're just inflamed. Yeah, they're just inflamed, yeah. But their oxalates are so bad, guys. They're so mm. bad. They are the worst thing. You, they're the worst because they are depo- – once, once – when your gut can't deal with breaking down oxalates, they start depositing in in your joints, in your in your they deposit in your um in in the bladder, in the urethra, in your joints. They can get into the thyroid. They can even get into the brain, and they're causing chronic pain and chronic inflammation and and a huge release of histamine. Mm. Um, and then, and then the massive issues with the sulfation is, you know, a patient. Well, I had a lady in last week, and she's just there's just there's a, I share an office with like other, lots of other practitioners, beauticians mm-hmm. and stuff. And there was too many smells, perfumes and stuff. And they just, they were like nauseous and sick and they felt terrible because if you don't have enough glutathione, you, you can't support your detoxification liver. And these people have those, the multiple chemical sensitivity and the multiple food intolerances. So they can't tolerate oxalate foods. They can't tolerate sulfur foods. They probably got SIBO as well. And they can't tolerate FODMAPs and they can't tolerate histamine foods. So these people have multiple, multiple food intolerances. So these people, and, they, and they've done every product, they've done SIBO protocols, they've done Candida protocols, they've done everything and they, they, they never get better. And it's because their biochemistry is so disrupted. So they're, the, they're the really sick people, guys. Whenever I see, whenever I get, I might, someone might send me genetic tests, Dutch hormones tests, like microbiome tests, SIBO tests. They've done, if they've done an organic acids test, the first thing I'll look for is oxalates. And if it's there, that is driving their problems. It, it's really driving their problems in a massive way. So mm. it's, um, and it's just, it's not where, it's not very well known, but it's quite, it's quite common. Why, why do you think that, and it, this isn't just unique to Australia or the U.S., I think it's everywhere. In fact, you even said that you counsel people in several other countries, uh, just, just not currently the U.S. Why do you think that this particular area of expertise to help people find this kind of relief is so new and yet still not really embraced by, by the allopathic uh, practitioners? I mean, because it's... We see people who are like this frequently, and then it, and, and I completely agree with you that so much of it begins with environment. Why is it being ignored, and why does it? Why do people get to this level? Big question. So, uh, look, you know the the allopathic medicine training is so different to natural medicine training. Mm-hmm. Number one. So, so a lot of doctors, you go to your GP and they haven't got the training around nutritional medicine, gut microbiome. Most of them don't believe in SIBO. They don't believe in the gut microbiome. They don't believe in it, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, okay, maybe it's a big thing. Um, and they, they're just not educated. And this is why I think, guys, I mean, if, if you've studied medicine for, you know, eight years at university and you've committed to it, and then you can, and you committed to your medicines and the way you treat. A lot of doctors are just not able to to change because it's too hard. And they've got fifteen minutes with a chronic, the person with chronic illness in front of them. They've got 15, 20 minutes, or they don't have enough time. 
Okay, so that there's also the fact that you know we know how inflammatory grains are, but what is the government going to go? Oh, sorry, wheat farmers and the whole wheat industry and the whole processed food <laughs> industry. We're really so well. It's you know it's bad for your health, but that's not going to happen. No, it's just allopathic medicine is to keep people out of hospitals. So that I mean, look, we have a very, we, you know, our healthcare system in Australia. Is, I mean, it's it's different because we we're really lucky. We've got a you know government paid healthcare system, but if essentially you go to the doctor and they're like, okay, so I can give this person a medication and just or send them off to my gastroenterologist mate or my um, the psychologist or I'll send them to the neurologist and we'll just try and deal with the body in the separate parts, but they're not able to bring it back to the whole they're just not trained in that way um and it's i don't see it changing i really i really don't see it changing well Kim, um, I mean, you and i talked about how the training around medical school when it came down to actual diet diet selections and nutrition was probably one of the weaker parts of med school correct so my, uh, as a gastroenterologist training in, in my fellowship, so, you know, it's medical school, four years, it's three years of internal medicine, then three years, and I think now it's four of uh, fellowship. The department was called the Department of Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I can tell you, I don't know, maybe one 40-minute lecture by a dietitian in those seven years, literally one. And the department is named nutrition with it, but it's like, no. Nothing. It, it, nutritional medicine is incredibly complicated and powerful and can give people, it can turn your health around in a major way. And it's not respected enough at all. It's just not. Um, so it's, it's a problem. And the thing with nu nutritional medicine is if you, you know, if you've got, an, if you've got SIBO, like you can't tolerate healthy plant foods, you can't tolerate FODMAPs. And then you've got a massive issue with with his, all the your histamine so high you can't tolerate histamine foods. If you if you go in with lowering your FODMAPs and getting your histamines down, that gives people incredible relief from their symptoms. Like like it will stop their eczema getting worse. It will stop their migraines, their headaches, or reduce their anxiety. This is so so powerful. And my patients whinge about it sometimes, but I'm like, you're so lucky you can eat your way out of your health issue and not take methotrexate or steroids every day for the rest of your life. Yes. So it's yeah. powerful, powerful medicine. It's complicated. I know, and I'm just going to say this, integrative doctors in Australia, they say I'm an integrative doctor. They do a little short course on nutrition. They, pres they prescribe like a medical doctor. They prescribe supplements. They, did they just prescribe supplements? They're not doing dietary changes effectively. They, they, they're not educated properly on it. They say they are and they're not, and they're making patients worse. I think, I think that's the big, nutrition's the big problem, guys. I mean, the food, our food chain's just, I mean, the US, the food chain's not great. Our food chain's not great. It's the, the, the grain feeding of our animals and the processed foods and the corn and the fructose, the, you know, and the, it's it's just not it's not good and it's it's never going to change because a lot of these foods are cheap foods for people who are in, un, unable to afford healthy organic grass fed organic beef etc. So the food chains a massive problem and um, I don't think people think that nutri I think people think oh yeah I, I I eat okay but they don't understand that sometimes eating eating healthy plant foods eating high oxalate foods go you know going keto is going to cause problems with oxalates as well through complicated ways and people are doing all these crazy diets veganism keto whatever and and if it's not right for them it's just completely destroying their biochemistry and then they're so confused and they go to a doctor and they've got the doctor's got no clue so i find i've been a naturopath for seven years eight years and I cannot believe that I've been able to have a successful business the way I have off the back of histamine issues because they're so prevalent and so common and no one knows about, hardly anyone knows about it. Like it blows my mind that that's the case. So let's right there. So you, you keep mentioning the histamine. And so the histamine was really interesting to me because after I started looking at some of your videos and some of your blogs, I realized, oh shit, I'm blaming all these other symptoms 
on certain things when this could be histamine. Like I'm maybe your SIBO is not causing all these issues. Maybe it's the fact that your SIBO has resulted in a decreased diamine oxidase, which then results in a higher histamine. And maybe it's the histamine that's causing these issues. So yeah, yeah, one direct question for you, how does SIBO affect diamine oxidase? Yeah. So SIBO is essentially an inflammatory issue in the small bowel because the gases created from the bacteria are causing tissue damage, inflammation. Okay. Now, diamine oxidase Dow enzyme is highly concentrated in the small bowel. Okay. And, and, it, and it resides in the microvilli as, a, as an enzyme, right? And when you've got inflammation and sort of, you know, not, not sort of, you don't, like I know, Ken, you don't go in there with an, have an endoscopy and see, you know, that there's damage, but it's subclinical damage and inflammation, and it's reducing your Dow enzyme synthesis and excretion. Okay. So, and the thing is with SIBO at the same time, because of all the inflammation, the tissues, the epithelial cells are going to create histamine due to being in, due to the inflammation. They're not mast cells, they're epithelial cells that will make histamine on the spot when challenged by inflammation. Mm-hmm. So you've got more histamine being made and then less ability to break it down. Well, it's, thing- oh, I was just going to say it's interesting because I've given lectures where I show the inflammatory pathway and how there's new studies to show that um, the mast cells sub epithelio in the near the enteric nervous system reside very close between the enteric nervous system, which communicates with the central nervous system, the vagus. And I've actually always described it as, oh, the mast cell gets turned on. It dumps these different inflammatory meters, one of them being histamine which then hits the enteric nervous system. It never occurred to me that the histamine is also becoming a problem intraluminal, which is what some of the things you were talking about in your videos. That's right. And, and, and Ken, why I have to think about this is because like this, this real overdiagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS, which I just look at it as the, the mute, the, they're going berserk that, you know, it's really, they're, they're, what's causing mast cell activation syndrome um, is not necessarily what's just causing histamine intolerance. So I needed to think about why people weren't responding to mast cell stabilizing drugs, why they weren't responding to quercetin that stabilizes mast cells. And when I just looked into the research, I'm like, it's simply the epithelial cells will create histamine under duress from SIBObacteria, Candida, um, gram-negative bacteria and LPS toxins will just create the inflammation. Histidine gets converted into histamine in these cells with the use of B6 when under duress from inflammation. And so it, 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 it was just saying to me, this is why people aren't responding to mast cell stabilizers and they're not responding to like quercetin and natural mast cell stabilizers because it's not a massive mast cell problem. It's just more of a gut inflammation problem. And, and, and it's just the- it's just how you tra- it's how you'd go around treating it is different. So instead of giving quercetin, I definitely would give his- I'd give um, the histamine block, the Dow enzyme, to help just deal with the histamine being made in the sense. gut. Yeah. yeah. And the Dow enzyme deals with histamine from food. So the person is eating spinach and avocados and bananas, and they're just so inflamed, and they're like, oh, "I'm eating all this healthy food." And it's just like, it's just because your dowel's overloaded and, and it's coming from inflammation in the gut. Do you have and, and that? You and then you don't need to go down that MCAS pathway, which is complicated. And most people with MCAS, I think, have, I mean, be different. I'm sure people with Crohn's and stuff would have MCAS from that chronic immune dysfunction, right? But outside of that, it's going to be mold, mold illness and heavy metals causing MCAS that needs to be, it's, that's a medical problem that I can't fix. But what I can fix is is the gut inflammation stuff. Yeah, I like that. I like that T-shirt that says, dude, your Dow's low. And people will think you're being all Taoist and, you know, like meditative. When really, no, no, no. It's, you got too much histamine, bro. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you, when you treat people with, let's say, a diamine oxidase, a Dow enzyme, do you do that with each meal or is that a once a day thing? How do you do that? 
Yeah, well, usually um, I'll do that in conjunction with lowering, lowering histamine in the small bowel by treating SIBO, right? So I simply get people on a low FODMAP, low histamine diet just to calm it all down because inflammation just causes more inflammation, doesn't it, right? Calm it all down. And then if they're really bad with histamine, like if they get, so sometimes you don't need to give Dow enzyme at all. Like, like, cause it's quite expensive. You don't, or you can just calm the histamines down with diet like that really, really quickly. But if someone is suffering with my, like migraines, you know, or eczema is really, really bad and they can't go to work, it's quite mm-hmm. severe. Then I actually get them to take the Dow enzyme just as a rule before food, even though they're not eating histamine foods, but just to get it in, in a routine just to help, I mean, look, there's always going to be a bit of histamine in the food, isn't there? But just because of aging process, I just get them to take it before each meal because it's actually just dealing with any of the histamine that's coming from the gut and from any food at the same time. But you can also take Dow enzyme to deal with histamine. If your anxiety and your insomnia, so your anxiety is coming from histamine, which it absolutely causes anxiety, you can take Dow enzyme to reduce your histamines mm. and your anxiety. And you can take that any time of the day. It's really powerful. Insomnia, you can also take Dow enzyme mm. before bed. Most of the most of the um sleeping tablets are antihistamines. Yeah. The pharmacy yeah. Right. So you can take some Dow enzyme before bed to help mm. you sleep. Right. So so it's a really it's a really interesting supplement that you can you can take to deal with the histamine. It's, that's the thing with histamine. The, the easy thing about it is it's broken down with Dow, right? Or it's broken down with methylation. But in the majority of people, it's coming from the gut. It's coming from diet and it's coming from SIBO. And, and it's just that's how you deal with it. Right. It's mm. just you reduce it in the gut. And then it stops it getting into the central nervous system, which is really where methylation breaks down histamine. I've got an interesting. I've got a, a strange environmental question, and you you had me kind of on this train when you when you've mentioned eczema a few times. Do you find that maybe as weather gets colder, that you end up encountering more people who are having a histamine imbalance simply because of that weather change? And I. I've noticed that there are there are many people uh, who have cyclical episodes of of uh, eczema outbreaks, which happens to coincide usually with cold weather. So I'm kind of curious if maybe you have people who come in and have their complaints about probably histamine uh, problems in colder weather. Definitely. So I think um, with Sydney, it's more of an issue with um, the not that we get that cold here, but it's it's the the plants, mm-hmm. this the fauna and flora in Australia, we are like we, it's it's quite unique. Our for our, our plant life, not just our animals, our plants are unique, and people can be very <laughs> aller, allergy prone to our plants, especially people that are not born in Australia, right? A lot of you know, I've got a lot of patients from Asia and stuff that will come in and have massive histamine flare ups, eczema when in the spring. Um, and because this, there is actually a lot of mold in Sydney because it's built on sandstone and it's, it's surrounded by water and does get relatively humid. So absolutely. Yes. People, when it rains a lot, mm-hmm. um, dampness goes up, um, they will definitely have an increase in their histamine symptoms, any symptom, eczema, et cetera. But I had one patient when I first started, the worst eczema I've ever seen. It was so bad. And um, this is before I knew about mold. And we got her on a SIBO diet and we just low histamine and we got her pretty good, but it just would just never go away. And then she actually went to New York and it went away, gone. Hmm. As soon as she came back to Sydney in her apartment, it, it, as soon as she walked in the apartment, five minutes later, the, you could just feel it, the skin. Wow. In started to itch, itch, itch. And I'm like, this is environmental. And it, it was absolutely mold. So she lived near Bondi Beach, which is like near the beach, near the water, like old, really old homes down there. Not enough, her, she was on the backside, not a lot of sunlight, and it, it's mold. So, so I started to really understand mold um, when I started really looking into histamine. And now I've got a mold specialist working for me because it's such a big problem. So mold's going to grow just, just with humidity and dampness. 
But um, mm. yeah, but absolutely, skin issues are so hard to treat because there's so many environmental factors that play into it. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I tell you what, I have, uh, we posted today on Instagram that we were going to be discussing with you, a histamine expert and obviously a methylation expert. So I want to ask you a couple of quick questions from some people that uh, chimed in. So one of my favorite Kiwis, Delaney, uh, responded to this question. What is the difference between histamine intolerance and histamine intoxication? And you kind of hinted at it when we first started a little bit. Well, I mean, histamine intoxication is not really a, a term that we use here. So does she mean mast cell activation syndrome? It's um, it's a he. And I think that uh, he just wrote histamine intoxication must have something to do with uh, had a bad reaction in some sort of way. I'm thinking like you were describing the person that came in with just anxiety and all this other stuff and you gave them some methyl products and they ended up getting much worse. That's how I'm viewing the question, like oh, an okay. acute so, exacerbation. Okay, so can, can you just say the question again? So what's the difference between histamine intolerance and histamine intoxication? Yeah, okay, so if you're looking at intoxication as being a, an acute so like an acute histamine attack. That's kind of how I'm viewing it, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. So, you know, what can happen is someone can have bubble histamines being bubbling up for a, like a chronic problem for a long time and just simply having some histamines issues, like um, they've got, um, they've always had headaches and migraines. They have terrible issues with their hormones because it makes estrogen, it really increases estrogen. They might have some chronic reflux, which is coming from histamine, but they don't know about it. They don't know about histamine, right? And they sort of live with these problems, but they take antihistamines every day, right? But they don't sort of think about it. And then what can happen is they can actually do something like this. And I see this, they have shellfish. They've never been anaphylactic to shellfish before because their histamine cup's quite high and they'll go and have some shellfish right? And then bang, their immune system just kicks off and goes berserk. And they have a, a really severe histamine response to that. Mm. The first time ever. COVID, massive, right? Because it's an inflammatory condition. And there's all this research on the microbiome and stuff. So people, I've got so many patients from with long COVID with histamine issues because they always had SIBO. They always had it. They just never, they just never bothered treating it. Right, or they've always had massive estrogen dominance. They've never really treated it. Then they had COVID and this massive inflammatory condition, and all this histamine is bubbling up, and they have. Then they get the massive histamine issues, like acute, like severe migraine, mm. severe anxiety, severe eczema, severe eczema. I had a patient recently, like she's had, she's always had gut problems. She's just ignored them for 40 years and then she got COVID or it was the vaccination or something and she's now got extremely itchy, red, raw skin and it's all histamine. Hmm. So, so these people have underlying histamine intolerance. It's not, not treated and then they have something that severely triggers it. Anaphylactic reaction to something like selfish or peanuts, vaccination, COVID will do it. Definitely I've seen that. Um, People, and, and then the other thing with, that I've seen with COVID, not that my, you know, my patient base on that is massive, but all the pa all the patients that I've seen with long COVID histamine problems have got mold illness. They've got mold in their house. They've just never dealt with it. Hmm. Wow. So that's how I see it. You can become intoxicated with too much histamine, really only if you've got an underlying histamine problem. That's That's how I see it. So we have another question here from Hadil, and she asked, does a histamine intolerance have any correlation to one's serotonin levels and or anxiety issues? Yeah, absolutely. So this is fascinating. Um, histamine is involved in the release of serotonin, right? So it, this is complex. Histamine does stimulate the release of serotonin and dopamine, Right. Um, so it can definitely affect your serotonin output. Okay. The thing with serotonin is you need it balanced. You don't want it too high. So, so with serotonin, you need a certain amount, but when you have too much serotonin, it causes serotonin syndrome, which is depression. 
what what you need to break down serotonin and actually convert serotonin into melatonin is SAME. It's methylation. Mm. So complex, guys. When we're dealing with neurotransmitters, it's very complicated and there's obviously a lot more to do with that. So, you know, simply having inflammation in the brain is going to cause issues with serotonin. Now, the big thing with histamine, this is very, this is a very direct ish thing. Histamine that's coming from the body, from gut issues and estrogen, this is a massive thing, will get into the brain and it increases histamine in the brain. Histamine in the brain then sends a message to the adrenals to release adrenaline, which absolutely causes anxiety. And it will cause heart palpitations, shortness of breath, okay? And, and all the, the adrenaline symptoms of anxiety. And then it causes insomnia. Histamine is involved in the sleep-wake cycle in the brain. So it's important for sleep-wake, you know, going to sleep, waking up. But when it's too high, chronic insomnia. And these people, I always ask them, do you feel tired but wired? You know, they wake up in the middle of the night at one o'clock and I say to them, if you had to get up to go to the airport, would you just be like, right, I'm, not, I'm getting up. I actually want to get up and do something. They're like, yes, I feel like I've got to get up and do something, but my body's so tired, but my brain is just wired. So absolutely histamine causes anxiety and, and mm. insomnia like that. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. We actually ended up with a bunch more questions, but I think you covered almost all of it. That was very thorough what we've been covering here. Um, so that is super fascinating. And like we said in the very beginning, screw that. You're a doctor. I don't care. I don't care if they don't honor <laughs> that. Right. That's a lot of information. Absolutely. Wow. And you really know your shit. Dang. And it's complex. And it gets me thinking, I don't pay that close attention to my diet. The amount of oxalates I do. I'm just pretty much don't like to, I mean, you and I are pretty simple. It's like, we just eat whole foods, but I will, I will not put two and two together that maybe I'm eating a high oxalate diet or I'm promoting histamine. Totally agree. But I think that if we, if you really listen to what, and Joanne, you, please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I heard you say throughout this entire presentation and, and uh, discussion is a balance of what you eat nutritionally is critically important. You obviously need the green leafy vegetables. There's nothing wrong with nuts and seeds, but if you don't have the B12 to help balance that out and you don't have the correct nutrition to support the pathways that handle histamine that makes certain that you have homocysteine levels right where you need them to go. That's where you begin to allow your body to get into trouble. Is that correct? Absolutely. I really think having a balance is absolutely key. And sometimes patients come to me where they're so out of balance that it takes a long time to get them back, back into balance because, you know, that's going to allow every like, a human to eat all the foods that we're actually meant to eat and absorb properly for to run out to run our body. But but these extreme diets are often not right for a particular person at a particular time in their life. You know, that's that's the thing. I mean, this is why nutritional medicine is so powerful and it needs to be um, you know, each person needs to really understand what their nutritional requirements are. Because, because it's it's important to get it right for yourself. But broadly, absolutely, eating a wide variety of plants and, and nuts and seeds and animal protein is, is essentially the best way to go. And I kind of call that a loose paleo diet with treat. You know, treats are fine, you know, like we need that. But it's when you're pushing one pathway too hard, you can end up very, very sick. And just don't, you know, a lot of people just doing these fad things. I mean, a lot of young girls in Sydney are vegans and they're so, so sick. You know, hydrochloric acid is antimicrobial. I've, I read the evolution of hydrochloric acid. I just went down this rabbit hole of research. Humans have evolved to have highly acidic stomachs, like vultures. We actually have acidic stomach like vultures because we're meant to be eating animal pro animals and being able to break it down and, and it protects our gut from microbes building up. So it's, it's, it's fundamentally important to do that. I'm glad you brought that up. When I met Ken, he got my attention because you were a big promoter of roadkill consumption. That's how we met. I was, I was, I, when everybody else would go to the cafeteria, I would just walk out in the street and find a, a recently killed squirrel and have no problems with it. Yeah. You're joking. Oh, yes, we yes. are. 
I mean, you live in Texas, so I don't know. I don't know. There's cowboys. Oh, we live in people, Texas. People for real cruise around in cowboy hats and cowboy cowboy boots. Cowboy get up there. That's true. I, I like I like that you called it get up. <laughs> Joanne, it was a pleasure to have you on. I, I really hope that we have you back again. That was uh I feel like that we're really only at the very beginning. Yeah, and there's and if you uh watch this and you're like, oof, I'm overwhelmed. Me too. That's why we're having her on. She's teaching all of us. And Joanne, I saw on your website that you do have some some um, educational books that that people can get. Can you yeah. how do, how do people get hold of you? Yeah, so my website is simply joannekennedy.com.au. And I have written a book on histamine intolerance. So basically all the causes um, of histamine intolerance, the testing that you can do to identify the causes and how we treat all of that. And I've also done a masterclass video series on that. You can also get some recipes. So that's all in my e-bundle and you can get that on my website. That's great. Uh, do you do you come to the US ever? Do you trip here? I want to come. <laughs> what well, when, when you do, uh, I would love to have you in studio. I mean, this is. I'd love to, guys. That'd be awesome because yeah. I want to wear my cowboy hat. Dude, we're gonna get you in some getup, and we're gonna we're gonna have a fantastic roadkill feast, yeah. Texas style. Yeah, great, you're, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're getting a belt buckle and chaps too. We're not stopping at a hat, that's for sure. But I'm not joking. I've actually got an Akubra hat, which is an Australian cowboy hat that I bought because I want to go to Jackson Hole in the US and go skiing in my cowboy hat. Nice. I'm not, okay. I'm not, I like that. Okay. Um, where can people find you on social media? Um, my Instagram is at Joanne Kennedy Naturopath, all one word. And I've got a YouTube channel as well, which is simply Joanne Kennedy Naturopath. So Perfect. they're all my, my vlog, my video content that I'm doing slowly. All links will be in our show notes, of course, on the uh, homepage of kbmdhealth.com or gutcheckproject.com. So everything that she's just listed Folks, we'll make certain that we make it easy for you to find and connect with Joanne Kennedy. Yes. So that's a wrap. Episode 85, Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. And it's a lot of fantastic information. It's got me thinking a lot about a bunch of patients that I feel like I need to take a a, a second look um, and redirect a little bit where we're going. So thank you very much for educating us. You're welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Joanne, don't go away yet, but guys, we're going to go ahead and close out the show. And thank you all so much for tuning in to episode 85. Be sure to like and share this episode or any others of Gut Check Project. Ken, anything else to add for this? No, one? just if you want to learn more, we gave you the place to find Joanne where you can get her uh, books on these different topics. Thank you so much, Joanne. Thank you, guys. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.